Chapter 1, Part 3 of Manual of Egyptian Archaeology and Guide to the Study of Antiquities in Egypt by Gaston Maspero, translated by Amelia B. Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 1, Architecture, Civil and Military. Section 3, Public Works. A permanent network of roads would be useless in a country like Egypt. The Nile here is the natural highway for purposes of commerce, and the pathways which intersect the fields suffice for foot passengers, for cattle, and for the transport of goods from village to village. Ferry boats for crossing the river, fords wherever the canals were shallow enough, and embanked dams thrown up here and there where water was too deep for fordings, have completed the system of internal communication. Bridges were rare. Up to the present time, we know of but one in the whole territory of ancient Egypt, and whether that one was long or short, built of stone or wood, supported on arches, or boldly flung across the stream from bank to bank, we cannot even conjecture. The bridge, close under the very walls of Zaru, crossed the canal which separated the eastern frontier of Egypt from the desert regions of Arabia Petraea. A fortified enclosure protected this canal on the Asiatic side, as shown in the accompanying illustration. The maintenance of public highways, which figures as so costly an item in the expenses of modern nations, played, therefore, but a very small part in the annual disbursements of the pharaohs, who had only to provide for the due execution of three great branches of government works, namely storage, irrigation, mining and quarrying. The taxation of ancient Egypt was levied in kind, and government servants were paid after the same system. To workmen there were monthly distributions of corn, oil and wine, wherewith to support their families, while from end to end of the social scale, each functionary, in exchange for his labour, received cattle, stuffs, manufactured goods, and certain quantities of copper or precious metals. Thus it became necessary that the treasury officials should have the command of vast storehouses for the safekeeping of the various goods collected under the head of taxation. These were classified and stored in separate quarters, each storehouse being surrounded by walls and guarded by vigilant keepers. There was enormous stabling for cattle. There were cellars where the amphorae were piled in regular layers, or hung in rows upon the walls, each with the date written on the side of the jar. There were oven-shaped granaries where the corn was poured in through a trap at the top, and taken out through a trap at the bottom. At Thuku, identified with Pithom by Monsieur Naville, the store chambers are rectangular and of different dimensions, originally divided by floors and having no communication with each other. Here the corn had to not only be put in, but taken out through the aperture at the top. At the Ramesseum, Thebes, thousands of ostraca and jar stoppers found upon the spot proved that the brick-built remains at the back of the temple were the cellars of the local deity. The ruins consist of a series of vaulted chambers, originally surmounted by a platform or terrace. At Philae, Ombos, Daphne, and most of the frontier towns of the Delta, there were magazines of this description, and many more will doubtless be discovered when made the object of serious exploration. The irrigation system of Egypt is but little changed since the olden time. Some new canals have been cut, and yet more have silted up through the negligence of those in power, but the general scheme and the methods employed continue much the same, and demand but little engineering skill. 
Wherever I have investigated the remains of ancient canals, I have been unable to detect any traces of masonry at the weak points or at the mouths of these cuttings. They are mere excavated ditches from 20 to 60 or 70 feet in width. The earth flung out during the work was thrown to right and left, forming irregular embankments from 7 to 14 feet in height. The course of the ancient canals was generally straight, but that rule was not strictly observed, and enormous curves were often described in order to avoid even slight irregularities of surface. Dikes thrown up from the foot of the cliffs to the banks of the Nile divided the plain at intervals into a series of artificial basins, where the overflow formed backwaters at the time of inundation. These dikes are generally earthworks, though they are sometimes constructed of baked brick, as in the province of Gerge. Very rarely are they built of hewn stone, like that great dike of Kashish, which was constructed by Mina in primeval times in order to divert the course of the Nile from the spot on which he founded Memphis. The network of canals began near Silsilis and extended to the seaboard without ever losing touch of the river, save at one spot near Beni Suef, where it throws out a branch in the direction of the Fayum. Here, through a narrow and sinuous gorge, deepened probably by the hand of man, it passes the rocky barrier which divides that low-lying province from the valley of the Nile, and thence expands into a fan-like ramification of innumerable channels. Having thus irrigated the district, the waters flow out again, those nearest the Nile returning by the same way that they have flowed in, while the rest form a series of lakes, the largest of which is known as the Biket el Kurun. If we are to believe Herodotus, the work was not so simply done. A king, named Morris, desired to create a reservoir in the Fayum, which should neutralise the evil effects of insufficient or superabundant inundations. This reservoir was named, after him, Lake Morris. If the supply fell below the average, then the stored waters were let loose, and Lower Egypt and the Western Delta were flooded to the needful height. If the next year the inundation came down in too great force, Lake Morris received and stored the surplus till such a time as the waters began to subside. Two pyramids, each surmounted by a sitting colossus, one representing the king and the other his queen, were erected in the midst of the lake. Such is the tale told by Herodotus, and it is a tale which has considerably embarrassed our modern engineers and topographers. How, in fact, was it possible to find in the Fayum a site which could have contained a basin measuring at least 90 miles in circumference? Linnant supposed Lake Morris to have extended over the whole of the low-lying land which skirts the Libyan cliffs between Illahun and Medinet el Fayum. But recent excavations have proved that the dikes by which this pretended reservoir was bounded are modern works, erected probably within the last 200 years. Major Brown has lately shown that the nucleus of Lake Morris was the Birket el Kurun. This was known to the Egyptians as Miri, Mi-Uri, the Great Lake, whence the Greeks derived their Moiris, a name extended also to the inundation of the Fayum. If Herodotus did actually visit this province, it was probably in summer, at the time of the High Nile, when the whole district presents the appearance of an inland sea. What he took for the shores of this lake were the embankments which divided it into basins and acted as highways between the various towns. His narrative, repeated by the classic authors, has been accepted by the moderns and Egypt, neither accepting or rejecting it, was gratified long after date with the reputation of a gigantic work which would in truth have been the glory of her civil engineers, 
if it had ever existed. I do not believe that Lake Moiris ever did exist. The only works of the kind which the Egyptians undertook were much less pretentious. These consist of stone-built dams erected at the mouths of many of those lateral ravines, or wadis, which lead down from the mountain ranges into the valley of the Nile. One of the most important among them was pointed out in 1885 by Dr. Schweinforth at a distance of about six miles and a half from the bars of Helwyn at the mouth of the great Wadi Garraweh. It answered two purposes, firstly as a means of storing the water of the inundation for the use of the workmen in the neighbouring quarries, and secondly as a barrier to break the force of the torrents which rushed down from the desert after the heavy rains of springtime and winter. The ravine measures about 240 feet in width, the sides being, on average, from 40 to 50 feet in height. The dam, which is 143 feet in thickness, consists of three layers of material. At the bottom, a bed of clay and rubble. Next, a piled mass of limestone blocks. Lastly, a wall of cut stone, built in retreating stages, like an enormous flight of steps. 32 of the original 35 stages are yet in situ, and about one-fourth part of the dam remains piled up against the sides of the ravine to right and left, but the middle part has been swept away by the force of the torrent. A similar dike transformed the end of Wadi Gena into a little lake, which supplied the Sinaitic miners with water. Most of the localities from which the Egyptians derived their metals and choicest materials in hard stone were difficult to access, and would have been useless had roads not been made, and works of this kind carried out, so as to make life somewhat less insupportable there. In order to reach the diorite and grey granite quarries of the Hammamat Valley, the pharaohs caused a series of rock-cut cisterns to be constructed along the line of the route. Some few insignificant springs, skilfully constructed into these reservoirs, made it possible to plant workmen's villages in the neighbourhood of the quarries, and also near the emerald mines on the border of the Red Sea. Hundreds of hired labourers, slaves and condemned criminals here led a wretched existence under the rule of some eight or ten overseers and the brutal surveillance of a company of Libyan or Negro mercenary troops. The least political disturbance in Egypt, an unsuccessful campaign, or any untoward incident of a troubled reign sufficed to break up the precarious stability of these remote establishments. The Bedouin at once attacked the colony, the workmen deserted, the guards, weary of exile, hastened back to the valley of the Nile, and all was at a standstill. The choicest materials, as diorite, basalt, black granite, porphyry, and red and yellow breccia, which are only found in the desert, were rarely used for architectural purposes. In order to procure them, it was necessary to organise regular expeditions of soldiers and workmen. Therefore, they were reserved for sarcophagi and important works of art. Those quarries which supplied building materials for temples and funerary monuments, such as limestone, sandstone, alabaster and red granite, were all found in the Nile Valley and were therefore easy of access. When the vein which was intended to work traversed the lower strata of the rock, the miners excavated chambers and passages, which were often prolonged to a considerable distance. Square pillars left standing at intervals supported the superincumbent mass, while tablets sculpted in the most conspicuous places commemorated the kings and engineers who began or continued the work. Several exhausted or abandoned quarries have been transformed into votive chapels, as, for instance, the Spios Artimidos, which was consecrated by Hapshetzit, Thothmes III, and Seti I, to the local goddess Parquet. The most important limestone quarries are at Tura and Masara, nearly opposite Memphis. This stone lends itself admirably 
to the most delicate touches of the chisel, hardens when exposed to the air, and acquires a creamy tone most restful to the eye. Hence it was much in request by architects and sculptors. The most extensive sandstone formations are at Silsilis. Here the cliffs are quarried from above and under the open sky. Clean cut and absolutely vertical, they rise at a height of from 40 to 50 feet, sometimes presenting a smooth surface from top to bottom, and sometimes cut in stages accessible by means of steps, scarcely large enough for one man at a time. The walls of these cuttings are covered with parallel striae, sometimes horizontal, sometimes slanting to the left, and sometimes to the right, so forming lines of serried chevrons, framed, as it were, between grooves an inch or an inch and a half in width, by nine or ten feet in length. These are the scars left upon the surface by the tools of the ancient workmen, and they show the method employed in detaching the blocks. The size was outlined in red ink, and this outline sometimes indicated the form which the stone was to take in the projected building. The members of the French Commission, when they visited the quarries of Gebel Abafeda, copied the diagrams and squared designs of several capitals, one being of the campaniform pattern, and others prepared for the Hathor head pattern. The outline made the vertical faces of the block were divided by means of a long iron chisel, which was driven in perpendicularly, or obliquely, by heavy blows of the mallet. In order to detach the horizontal faces, they made use of wooden or bronze wedges, inserted the way of the natural strata of the stone. Very frequently, the stone was roughly blocked out before being actually extracted from the bed. Thus, at Sain, Asuan, we see a conchat obelisk of granite, the underside of which is one with the rock itself, and at Tene, there are drums of columns, but half disengaged. The transport of quarried stone was effected in various ways. At Sain, at Silsis, at Gebel Sheikh Herideh, and at Gebel Abafideh, the quarries are literally washed by the waters of the Nile, so that the stone was lowered at once into the barges. At Kasa Essaid, at Tura, and other localities, situate at some distance from the river, canals dug expressly for the purpose, conveyed the transport boats to the foot of the cliffs. When water transit was out of the question, the stone was placed on sledges drawn by oxen, or dragged to its destination by gangs of labourers, and by the help of rollers. End of chapter 1, section 3. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.